Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. James 5, starting at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And even though at times the word of God is painful for us, We know that uh, though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. And let's ask for his help as we look at this passage together. Bow with me, please. Father, we come before you and we trust, Lord, that uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And Lord, the same steadfast covenant love that you showed to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Lord, that you showed through Moses is the same steadfast covenant love that you show us now through Christ in the new covenant of his blood. And so we trust then that, Lord, even when we come to passages that maybe seem offensive or abrasive to us, that uh, this is also for our good, even as we were reminded that all of your scripture is breathed out by you and it's profitable. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to profit from your word this morning, to be built up, to see and know Christ more clearly And Lord, that we would uh, just continually be sanctified, that we would grow in holiness and even our desire for holiness, that you would take away the the old longings of Adam for the the pleasures of this world and Lord, the the empty deceit of riches, that we would see even our, our wealth, even our money as an opportunity to honor you and glorify you and not as something to put our hope in. And, uh, Lord, to worship, I pray that you keep us from idolatry. And, Lord, may you uh, just give each heart and mind attentiveness this morning as we open your word. And I know we're tired uh, from the time change as well. And just pray your grace upon the children, too, that they may also benefit uh, from your word preached this morning. And we pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Thank you. So the title this morning is uh, Exposing the Godless Rich Man. And the the term godless is important, as we will see. This is not simply an attack on anybody with wealth, but it is a certain type of rich person who has engaged in certain practices, who has believed certain lies that James is coming against uh, very aggressively. It almost seems like a prophet of old has risen up again in the letter of James here, and we will see some parallels even from Isaiah and uh, some of the Old Testament prophets. As I think about this passage of scripture, and as I've been thinking about it, uh, looking over it this week, uh, I had to think a little bit about um, whitewater rafting, and that may seem kind of strange, but I haven't done a lot of extreme sports. Uh, I guess one time whitewater rafting at my uncle's place in the States. And before we started, the, the guy that would be steering the boat, the raft we were on, 
kind of gave us an overview of the, the river and he explains some parts of it. You can actually jump off the raft and swim for a while. Other parts of it are the rapids are very uh, large and then the, the river is very fast. And so you need to pay very careful attention to what he says and, and to row when he says to row. And, and uh, as you think about a letter like this, uh, I would say we've come through chapter four and five would be some of the, the very rough uh, dangerous waters, perhaps, the, the rapids of James, as he really brings uh, the, the, the temperature of his letter to a fever pitch here, as he comes against, one final time, those wealthy uh, individuals who have neglected to use their wealth to honor God, and, uh, and have actually um, begun to use it for themselves. Some think that James may even be writing simply to non-believers uh, in this section. It seems almost like maybe he's looking at uh, possibly a portion within the church who may be professing faith, but based upon their actions, there's no true evidence of faith, of uh, true saving grace there. Uh, certainly we see that throughout the, the early church. But also keep in mind Um, We'll look at this a bit as well. He is writing, as he said, to Jewish Christians. And as this is a very early letter in the life of the church, uh, he very well may have in mind even some of those Jews and uh, and, and early um, members of the church who are even there at the crucifixion of Christ himself. Uh, And yet we want to be careful that we don't simply say, yeah, this is all uh, those guys back then who had all those problems Um, Good thing we're not like that. Uh, We need to be careful of of not going that route either, but allowing the Spirit of God to convict us on some of these same lies that they have embraced. And then we know this is a a particular, um, I guess you would say, a particular area of concern for James in dealing with the wealthy. Uh, If you flip back just for a minute to chapter 2, um, you'll remember that this is not the first time James has mentioned the dangerous uh, deceit of riches and also the abuses of those who have wealth and misuse it or misunderstand it. Um, James has already once brought about um, accusations against the wealthy. And um, um, James chapter 2, verse 6 specifically Just read that to refresh your memory. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts uh, is like, sorry, I went to one verse six, two verse six. Like, well, that's not the right verse. Um, Two verse six, James reminding um, the people of the danger of partiality and uh, how God is not one to show partiality and nor should we show partiality in in, uh, one to another, one who has wealth, we should care for and love, just as we would care for and love one who is poor. And in verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the one who drags you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so James, no doubt, has had some very uh, real encounters with these people, with this sort of upper class who feels very entitled, who has used the wealth that God has given them um, in a selfish sort of way and has even gone so far as to blaspheme and to, as we see in our text this morning, um, to even persecute and condemn and murder the righteous person. So it would certainly seem that the, the ones whom James has in mind here are, are not true believers. They are very likely self-deceived. But as I said, there is certainly still application for us. So this morning, I want to look at four lies that these rich individuals are believing and then look at how James exposes those four lies or four sins which they are guilty of. And it's almost in some ways set up like a court case as James brings the accusations against these individuals. Uh, And so first of all, um, we'll we'll come back to verse 1 towards the end. They're looking at the response that he calls from them. But let's look at the first lie that they have embraced, which is the lie that their riches will endure. 
they have embraced the lie that their riches will endure. And James says that, in fact, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, this is a, a very sobering reminder of the fact that wealth does not last. And um, even as we think about the, the definition of, of rich, riches, uh, no doubt in James' day, there was probably more of a drastic distinction between an upper class and a lower class uh, than maybe we see in our own culture. The, the middle class that we often refer to was maybe not quite as common then, but you had the extreme wealthy with tremendous amounts of land and possessions, and they would often uh, employ or even buy at times um, the, those from the poorer class who were just living from, from paycheck to paycheck, just hand to mouth. And, uh, and MacArthur used, I thought, the helpful definition of riches or being rich. Basically, if you have extra from what you need for your daily uh, food and, and living, you know, house and shelter, transportation, if you're able to cover those expenses and have excessive money left over, in many ways you would be in the category of rich. And of course, there are varying degrees of wealth. You have extreme wealth where, where people you know, just kind of treat money like water almost and it just seems to just kind of flow out from them constantly. Um, but really we have to understand that in light of the world in which we live, uh, we are a very wealthy people that we have tremendous luxuries that much of the world cannot even really fathom having. And I know that it's easy for us to take these things for granted, um, but I know even talking, you know, Gerben and Marianne spending some time in Guatemala and others of you who have seen very poor parts of the world where they literally have nothing and they, they are not even quite sure where their next meal comes from. And then there is us with our clean water on demand. We have heated water on demand, we have access continually to fresh fruits and vegetables and medical care and transportation. We have means of communicating. We have internet access 24-7. We have appliances that, that do a lot of work for us, from our washing of our clothes to keeping our food cold or even frozen for storage. I mean, even the idea of having uh, excessive food so that we need to freeze it, for many people, would be a foreign concept in the world today. And we do consider these things as quite normal um, in these Western nations. Uh, and of course, I'm not saying it's sinful to have them, but we do need to be aware that we are actually a very wealthy people in so many ways and that God has given us much to steward. And with that comes great responsibility as well. As Jesus said to the one who has given much, much will be required. And certainly we are a people who have been entrusted with much. And so I think it's fair to say that even if we're not guilty of some of these same lies in which these rich people were in James' day, they are certainly temptations to us that we must guard against. And so this lie that the first lie that, that material wealth and possessions will endure is something that we have to continually preach to ourselves. That, that the, the, the riches and the things of this world are temporary. And I think we know that, and, and I think everyone knows that on an intellectual level. And even if you ask the wealthiest person you know, will, you know your, will your vehicle last forever? Will your house last forever? Will, will your stock investments last forever? Uh, they'll probably say, well, well no, I, I don't, of course they won't last forever. Um, but, but the problem is, is convincing our hearts that these things won't last forever. We may intellectually know that they won't, but in our hearts, we, we treasure them and we delight in them and we treat them as though they will. And James is looking ahead as though he is fast forwarding to the, to the very uh, end of time, the judgment of God. And he's pointing out that when you consider the end, you realize that all of the fancy clothes, all of the trinkets and, and uh, the gadgets that we have spent so much money on, they are devoured by moths. And he says, even the silver and gold 
is corroded away, and it just simply will not last. And we understand that we treat disposable items differently than non-disposable. I mean, if you use disposable plates, and sometimes, uh, you know, if it's a really busy day or, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of running behind or something, we'll sometimes use some disposable plates for a meal and, uh, and, and really don't care too much what happens to them. You know, you see your one kid kind of tearing it up or chewing on it. The other one stuck his fork through it. And it's like, well, I don't really care if they don't make a huge mess. I'm not worried about protecting this, you know, expensive Well, of course, nowadays it does get a bit expensive, but you understand what I'm saying, that these are disposable, they're they're temporal, they're they're, they're to serve a purpose and then to be discarded. As long as they make it into the garbage can, uh, we're not too concerned with them. You don't find people storing paper plates in china cabinets. You know, you you don't find them putting them on display in their dining room. That would be very unusual because they're temporal. And, And as we think about Actually, all of our riches, all of our possessions, James is saying it's all temporal. It's all disposable in a sense. When you consider the end of all things, it won't last. And so it's foolish to invest yourself heavily into it, to put your hope in it, to hoard it for yourself. It cannot last. Even if you think about maybe something that has been passed down to you, like a piece of jewelry from several generations has been given to you. One of those items that, was, that you, would, you would grab out of the house if the house was ever to catch on fire. You'd say, I would go and I'd get that piece of jewelry, that, that necklace or whatever it might be from my grandmother. Or maybe that hunting rifle that your great-grandfather passed on to you and it, it holds some significance to you. Even such items as that, we have to realize, are still temporal And we should hold on to them loosely. We should understand that all that we have has been given as a means of provision to bless our families, to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ and those around us. But we really steward them for a short time. And so to make the acquiring of wealth our our great end in life is foolishness. The chief end of man is not to acquire wealth and enjoy it forever, but the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that there is a tendency within our hearts to get those two things reversed, that we begin to convince ourselves as the American dream that we are here to acquire wealth and enjoy it forever. But that, James says, is foolish. And it is in the end, this very wealth that will actually become our condemnation if it is hoarded in an ungodly sort of way. And he picks up even on this imagery of corrosion and draws a connection to the judgment of God in hell. And he says that just as your gold and silver have corroded, this corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And he's, he's making a connection between the condemnation of those who have hoarded their wealth in a selfish, ungodly way. That very corrosion uh, picture of their wealth will be true of their very own bodies in hell. Jesus said similar words, and no doubt this is where James learned it, in the Sermon on the Mount, in uh, Matthew six nineteen, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, I know Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Principle, I'm sure you can even find some of the, his, his talks on this. I found it very helpful that, that we think of that as um, a statement uh, you know, of fact, that where your treasure is, your heart will be, which is, an, is a way of saying that if you want to know where someone uh, has placed the treasure and value of their life, you could follow their checkbook, or I guess you would say maybe their e-transfers these days. We don't do as many checks 
But where is it that your money goes? Where is it that you are spending your resources? That will be a good indication of where your heart is. And something Randy Alcorn uh, pointed out, which I've, I've always thought of as well, you can use this in the positive that if there is somewhere where you want your heart to go, somewhere where you know you need to, to be more concerned, then put some of your treasure there and watch your heart follow after it. Uh, if you desire to, to be more concerned for uh, missions, then, then try giving some money to a missionary family that is in need. And what you will find is you're also leading your heart in so doing. If you want to be more concerned with, with the, the, the church and the, the life of the body, well then give some, some money, give some finances to the work of the church. And what you find is your heart also becomes more concerned with these things. You see, this is not only true in a negative sense when we misuse our, 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 our wealth that our heart is led astray, but we can use it in a positive that when we invest our resources in the things of God, we also lead our heart in that way. All the while remembering, as James pointed out, that this, all these possessions, all of the silver and gold is temporal. And it simply will not last. A fascinating passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Similar imagery that he uses, the imagery of fire and fire exposing all things at the end. Um, But Paul compares our life to that of a building. And uh, and he says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, that according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so Paul is saying there is one foundation, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have trusted in him as Savior, then you certainly will be saved. You are part of this building. But we're also called to build upon it with all of the resources and the gifts and abilities that God has given. And we are to invest ourselves into the kingdom of God. And then when we stand before him, all that we have done, all that we have invested in, Paul is saying, will be exposed by fire. In this symbolic way, and what remains standing will be truly of eternal value, and we will be rewarded as, uh, accordingly. So, the first lie that these rich individuals believed is their wealth would endure, and James says, No, it will not. The moths will eat it, corrosion will take it, and you will follow after it if that has been where you have placed your hope. The second lie that they believed, we find in verse 4, which is that their dishonest dealings will go unnoticed. They seem to convince themselves that they could be dishonest in their business practices and that God would not notice. And yet James says in verse four, behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And this is a a very sobering statement as well for these rich individuals. And James is saying, well, they thought that they got away with the fraud. They thought they got away with cheating their neighbor or cheating the laborers who had come and worked for them and then they refused to pay them their wages. They thought they would get away with it and yet James points out that even the, the, the money itself that was owed to these individuals, it's as though it is crying out against them and the cries of the harvesters themselves have actually reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And God himself is aware of what they have done. He himself is angered by the injustice in which they have gotten gain. 
And as I said at the start, it's, James sounds like uh, a prophet of old calling the people of Israel to repent. Um, listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 3.10. And you see some similar forms of, of calling the nation to repent of their wickedness, of oppressing the poor and being dishonest. In Isaiah 3.10, he writes, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. And God has always been concerned for for justice and for righteousness, even in the workplace, even in the business place, that we as the people of God are called to to work and operate with integrity, with honesty, to be above reproach in all of our dealings. And sadly, I've heard multiple business owners express their dislike for working for Christians, they say that often they are very critical or difficult to get payment from. And I know that one bad experience, and people will brush you know, all of uh, Christians with the same brush, and that's obviously not true. Uh, I've certainly seen many uh, wonderful Christian businessmen and, and uh, had you know, great experiences. But, but we also need to be... Uh, sensitive to what James is saying here. We, we need to, to be above reproach, even in the way that we operate in the business place, not only as maybe a business owner or an employer, but also as employees. Are you being honest with the hours that you've worked? Are you taking items from work for yourself or maybe using the, the fuel card on, on personal uh, Travel when that's not been communicated by your boss. You know, there, there are so many ways in which we can try to be, even what we might say, well, he really does owe me. You know, I worked that overtime and I never got any compliment for it. So I think if I, if I take this tool home, well, it's kind of mine anyways, right? And we can begin to justify these things in our minds. Or maybe as a boss and, uh, you know, that, that you had made an agreement with someone about paying them a certain amount. But then after the job is done, you realize, oh, well, I, I didn't actually quote that quite high enough. I didn't make as much as I thought I was going to make. And so what I'll do is I'll just kind of pay them a little less than I had agreed and uh, make up some excuse about why I couldn't pay them the full amount. And, and, and these are the sort of things that, that God actually cares about, that, that God is, is watching the way we conduct ourselves in the business place, at our jobs, um, in, in all of our exchanges. And, and, and what we maybe don't realize is when we engage in dishonesty, when we engage in, in uh, taking advantage of someone else, James is saying there's a sense in which that money begins crying out to God and the injustice that the person has experienced also reaches the ears of the Lord of hosts. And that should really put a sense of fear and trembling in our hearts. That should produce within us an eagerness to make things right if we, if we have wronged somebody or if we have been dishonest in some way, to, to confess that, not only to God, but maybe we need to confess it to a, a coworker or to a boss. I mean, it would be an extremely humbling thing to have to admit that, oh, actually, I, I, I've been stealing fuel money for the last few months, and I am confessing that to you, and I want to actually work to paying that back. That would be a Christ-honoring response. I remember talking to one uh, pastor friend in Western Canada. He uh, had started this business plan to invest in, I think it was meat chickens or chickens of some sort. And he had 
uh, initially a contract to, to raise so many chickens and then they were going to sell them to, I don't remember the, the, the person who was going to buy them, but they were essentially told they would buy all of these animals that they would raise and they invested in the, the, the barn, they invested in the animals and all of this money as they're trying to start this business and then what happened was when he first got his first batch of animals uh, completed, to my understanding, that somehow the, the agreement to buy them fell through. And he ended up actually having to file bankruptcy because they just simply had no income to cover all the expenses uh, of starting this. And, and yet talking to this man, uh, even though he had filed bankruptcy, he felt before God that he needed to work to try and pay back those debts And so for the next 20 plus years, what he began to do is he had a bit of land and began to to log the land. These are, of course, in Western Canada, you get really massive trees that you hand fall and some of them can be quite valuable. And over the course of years, he he began hand falling a large portion of his land and selling the wood and, and then using that to slowly go back and pay off these debts. And after, I don't know how many years it took him, he actually finally paid off the last debt that he owed. And he felt that before God, this was right. And, uh, you know, I know that our, our, our culture is, is so very different when it comes to those sort of situations. We have all these bankruptcy laws and all these things that are very foreign to history. But, but I just thought that was such a, a wonderful testimony to a man who wanted to walk with integrity before God and a man who, who felt that he needed to be above reproach in all of his dealings. And so we want to be that sort of people, whether it's as an employee or an employer, that we are eager not only to do what is right and fair, but even an attitude, a heart of generosity. Uh, You know, if the business is thriving and doing well, then, then why not allow some of that to overflow also onto the employees? So many times we see successful business people that they, 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 they are doing well and, and, and they have the, the, the massive house and 15 boats and trailers and quads and then they have the guy that's been there for 15 years working and he's still struggling just to, to pay his bills and as business owners, as Christian business owners, we should look and say, you know what, I, I can actually bless some of my employees as well and uh, use some of what God has given me to in turn help them. Or I love the example of R.G. Letourneau. Um, he was a man who invented uh, many different, uh, well, a lot of heavy equipment, especially during the world, Second World War. I think it was said he was responsible for having designed up to around 70% of some of the earth movers and heavy equipment that was used. And yet he was a Christian man. And he had uh, early on in his, in his business and as he was inventing uh, machinery, uh, he had committed to God that he would live off of, of 10% of what his business made and 90% he would give to the cause of the kingdom of God. And he was consistent to do that and his company grew and grew and was worth millions and yet he continually poured that wealth back into the kingdom of God, whether it was through churches or all kinds of of ministries. And God just blessed this man. But he was not one to be uh, led astray by the riches, but used it to bless and to advance the kingdom. So the second lie is that the dishonesty would go unnoticed. But James says, no, it is noticed. And there needs to be repentance where there has been dishonesty or where they have taken someone for granted or um, have been unfaithful in business dealings. The third lie then is verse five. We see the lie that their self-indulgent, luxurious life is justified. See, not only did they... Did they misuse the laborers that had agreed to work for them? But we find in verse 5, then all of this wealth that they have hoarded and the, the wealth that they have got by unjust means, they live, uh, they spend it on themselves. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So they assumed that all of the, 
the wealth that they've acquired was simply to be spent on themselves and, and, and just to give themselves over to a sort of luxurious sort of living that was completely self-indulging. And James makes a shocking comparison to that of a fattened animal that is being made ready for the slaughter. Again, just such a, a sobering picture that James gives us here. And it, you would almost feel as though um, James goes out of his way to offend the wealthy. You know, a lot of uh, preachers nowadays want to work extra hard to keep the wealthy happy because they know that it's those that will be able to, to give large amounts. And yet it seems that James, he has no interest in, in, in catering to the wealthy. He is coming right at them and he is calling them to repent. And he says that you have lived on this earth in self-indulgence and luxury But what you don't realize is you are like the animal that is being fattened for the slaughter. I don't know if you have been part of raising such an animal. Uh, Growing up, dad had made this agreement with us as a way to save up some money for school or whatever, that if we we, uh, committed to do 4-H, that he would help provide some of the feed and uh, animal, and, uh, and then he would allow us to use some of the money that was made to save up for school and that sort of thing. And, and though I really did not enjoy cattle, I did not really enjoy the, the process at all, uh, I understood this was a way that dad had given us provision to make a bit of money. And so year after year, uh, we would go out and, uh, you know, I usually leaned on dad or my uncle to help me pick out the right animal because I didn't really know exactly what I was looking for, just kind of pick one that looks nice, but they can tell which one is going to develop nicely and, and finish. And, and, and the whole point, of course, is that you are, are selecting an animal that you will feed and you will monitor what's being fed and you are fattening them up for the auction sale at which they will be sold to the highest bidder and then taken to become uh, steaks and hamburger and whatever. And so I usually name my animal appropriately, something like T-Bone or Paycheck. You know, we saw a lot of interesting names in the 4-H club of people, you know, just remind themselves what's going to happen to this animal. Uh, I was not one to cry as you're, you know, going back and forth, getting, you know, selling this animal. I think maybe that was partly a ploy to increase the bidding, but Everyone always said, you know, you wipe your tears with a paycheck at the end. So, so this whole picture of the, the animal that is, is being prepared for slaughter. And, and you can see the, the, the picture that the animal for a season, the, the 4-H steer thinks, wow, this is incredible. You know, I get, I get all of this feed every day. It's, it's, it's ground up for me. It has all of these nutritious uh, things added in and water is packed Oh, to me every day, and what they don't realize is they are being prepared for slaughter. And, uh, and James is saying these rich individuals who have just given themselves over to luxury and self-indulgence, what they don't realize is they too are just storing up wrath for the day of wrath. They are like the animal that is being prepared for the slaughter. If they do not repent, then the full, the full fury of God is going to come upon them. And we find this language also throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah used this sort of language to describe Babylon. In Jeremiah 50, 26, he says, Come to her from the farthest border, open up her barns, pile up her like heaps and utterly destroy her. Let nothing be left to her. Put all her young bulls to the sword. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe be upon them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. And, it, and the, the imagery of the animal that is being prepared for the slaughter. So the wicked who will not repent, who will not submit themselves to God, are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. I know for the sake of time we won't read all of it, but you can't help but mention the parable in Luke 16. The rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said, the rich man had all of the luxuries of life and he was indifferent to the poor man Lazarus outside his gate who had nothing and was covered in sores and was begging uh, for his entire life. And yet when the life 
fades and, and they enter into eternity, Lazarus is the one who is there with Abraham in the glory and splendor of God's kingdom. The rich man is the one in misery, in hell, wanting even just a drop of water to soothe his tongue. And yet the response to him is, in life you had all of your good things. And Lazarus has now entered into the joy of his master. It is a sobering picture for us to be mindful that we are to prepare for the life to come. We're not to to take all that God's given and then just simply spend it extravagantly on ourselves. And again, this is not saying that it's wrong to buy new things. It's not wrong to enjoy the conveniences even of our own culture. We enjoy our washing machines and our refrigerators. And there's a sense in which as God has created us in his image, he has made man to create and to, to flourish. And, and, and much of the technology that has been made has helped to enable human flourishing. We're thankful that, that we can have children today without many of them having died in childbirth. I mean, even 50 to 100 years ago, so many children died in childbirth. I think it was John Owen um, lost all of his children. All six children died. And, and, and these are things that are unusual to us, partly because God has graciously allowed improvement in technology, improvement in understanding of how our bodies work. And, and we can give thanks to God for all of these good things, but yet we must be careful that we do not put our hope in these uh, riches. But rather, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, because the question always is, well, then how do we use what God's given us in a way that honors him, that glorifies him? How do we guard against the dangers that we see here in James? Well, Paul very clearly said, as for the rich in this present age, 1 Timothy 6, 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul doesn't tell Timothy, tell all the rich people they have to become poor. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, understand that your wealth, your riches are provided to you from God who gives everything to enjoy, but you are to use those riches not to set your hopes on it, but to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, to to leverage all of that to the kingdom of God, to the glorifying of his name, to the blessing of your children. So there's a godly, Christ-honoring way that one can use all that God has entrusted. And the, third, the, sorry, the fourth and final lie then is they believe that the persecution of the righteous would be without consequence. And we see the most heinous, the most even shocking condemnations that James gives to the, this crowd is that they have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And it's so sad that for some, the end goal is simply making a profit, seizing an opportunity, keeping up their image in society and maintaining their connections. And so when somebody gets in the way of that, whether righteous or unrighteous, they will simply dispose of them. That even people become a means to an end in their pursuit of wealth. And no doubt for some of these individuals, In that day, as they hear the apostles calling them to repent, they hear the sharp words of Jesus uh, calling them to repent, calling out their abuse of the poor, uh, of of their show, and even their tithing was nothing but a show, and Jesus rebuking them in that. No doubt they become angry, and they seek to destroy the righteous witness against them. And we don't know exactly if James has Christ himself specifically in mind here, but it certainly does seem like a reference to Christ himself. Um, He references 
the righteous person and says he does not resist you. No doubt referring to many of the, the martyrs throughout the ages. Uh, no doubt referring to what he said in chapter 2, how it's the, the rich that often drag them into courts and blaspheme God. But certainly this is applicable also to Christ our Lord in his own death and resurrection. Um, just want to turn for a few moments as we wind down here to Acts 7. And in Acts 7, we find reference to the death of Christ, but also what many would refer to as the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who is calling out the Pharisees and no doubt the rich at the time to repentance. And I just want to read, uh, starting at verse 1 in Acts, uh, sorry, uh, verse 51 in Acts 7. And uh, just listen to the words of Stephen here as he uh, exposes their own sin in condemning the righteous, even in relating to Christ. And then we see even the death of Stephen himself at the hand of these godless ones. So verse 51 of Acts 7, Stephen preaching his final sermon, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. So we see that the the godless who have put their hope in their wealth, in their riches, will hear nothing of repentance, will hear nothing of Christ, the righteous one, who is our only treasure. Unless the Spirit of God comes into those stony hearts and exposes them and breaks up that hard ground through the word, man will continue in this deadly state of looking to his riches. But may it be true that we have put our hope in God, that we have put our hope in Christ who is our treasure. And we look even at God's wisdom and sovereignty, even as they set themselves against Christ, the righteous one, we know that it was through them that our perfect sacrifice was given, that God purposed Through the hands of lawless men, Peter would say at Pentecost, even before the foundations of the world, he had put forward Christ as our perfect substitute. And as James said, that there was no resistance. Like a lamb, Christ went to the slaughter. And we praise God that even through the actions of these sinful men, he brought about our deliverance and our justification. That as Christ became Poor as he became man, taking on himself human flesh, joining his divine nature to a human nature forever, that he might be our faithful and high priest. We are now delivered from the bondage and tyranny of misplaced hope in riches. And James really only gives them one instruction in how to respond. And he tells them that it is, once again, it must start with repentance. He says there should be weeping and howling for the miseries that are coming upon them. This this sudden awareness that all of their sin, all of their idolatry has been before God and they will stand before him and give an account. And that should produce within them by the enabling of the spirit brokenness for their sin a turning from it. And he uses the 
the word, the word weeping, this is the, the same word that is, especially in the Jewish culture, they would have the mourners at the death, remember the death of, of Lazarus, and there were those that are mourning and wailing there. And this is the imagery that, that James is using that should be the response of these sort of sins and lies that one embraces. And so we need to examine ourselves and say, God, expose in me Expose in me areas where I have embraced these lies or have committed these sins. Am I looking to my riches and wealth as some sort of enduring sort of a, a, a form of security? Have I been honest in my dealings above reproach in business? Are there areas there where I need to repent, where I need to make something right? Do I... Look at all the things that God has given me as just to be spent on me. Am I just looking to indulge me? Or am I actively looking for ways to also give to those in need, to be, to be generous, to help advance the work of God? Is Christ my greatest treasure? As the hymn writer wrote, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, ruler of heaven, my treasure, thou art. And that is a daily prayer that we all need to pray, that God would keep us fixed upon Christ our Savior. Let's go through in prayer as we close, and, uh, and we'll have a final song. Bow with me, please. Lord in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the clarity and Lord, the honesty of it, Lord, you, you know us perfectly. You know each one's temptations and fears and, Lord, even our past sins or failures of things to do. And, Lord, we marvel that even while we were enemies of you, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And, Lord, I pray that we would, would truly have hearts that delight in him, that see Christ as our great treasure and all that you have entrusted in this life is, is a way in which we can, Lord, glorify you, give back to you, provide for our families and be generous and, and display the sort of life that has been transformed by the gospel. And give us wisdom in all of our dealings and, Lord, our monthly expenses and, and uh, the way in which we use these things. Lord, help us to think biblically about it. And to be a thankful people. Keep us from grumbling and complaining, Lord. Keep us from coveting after what our neighbor has. But, Lord, to learn contentment with godliness, which we know your word tells us is great gain. And we pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen.